Welcome to Epicenter. This is episode 473. This is a show that talks about the technologies, projects, and people driving decentralization and the blockchain revolution. I'm Sebastian Quijio, and I'm here with my co-host, Brian Crane and Felix Lush. How's it going, guy? Very good. Pretty good. A little tired, but looking forward to this. I think we're all a little bit tired. We all have little eyes, I can see. Um, it is early, though. But uh, we are today going to discuss, um, you know, this is kind of our year-end wrap-up episode. It's coming towards the end of the year. And, well, I guess it's safe to say lots has happened this year. And uh, we're going to go over all of that and hopefully make some sense of it. And hopefully make some sense of what's coming in the future. Um, that is, if there is a future uh, to be had. But before we do that, I'd like to first talk about our sponsor this week, TallyHo. TallyHo is an open source wallet redefining the wallet as a public good. With TallyHo, you can safely connect to DeFi and Web3, plus a lot more. You can view your NFTs in their wallet across Ethereum, Polygon, Optimism, and Arbitrum, and they have really great ledger support. Uh, you can also swap between assets and view all of your account balances across their portfolio tab. Currently, they're running a Layer 2 adventure that rewards users for exploring Arbitrum, the Arbitrum ecosystem with TallyHo. You can get a Space Dog NFT when you participate, and you'll be entered to win into a giveaway uh, for another NFT. So head over to their website, tally.cash, to check it out. I think Federica told me that tally is a type of dog that hunts foxes, um, which is kind of clever branding when you think about it. Yeah, head over to tally.cash to check it out. So guys, uh, there's another really great product that you know, I've been using over the last couple of weeks, and it's like this really great resume builder. And it's going to come in handy when we're all looking for new jobs in January. I wonder if you are also like, you know, sprucing up your resume uh, for a... Uh, you know, for when, when you're out of work in a couple of months. Well, actually, I've been trying to open a bank account and then they were like, required a resume. So I actually did have <laughs> <Really>? a resume. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what kind of KYC is going on these days? I know. Seriously, I know. you had to... Oh, my God. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Wow. Well, so... You know, we we uh, we came here to talk about uh, like you know, kind of look back on the last year and you make some sense of what's going on now and what the sentiment is and how that might affect uh, the future uh, for the industry. And so, yeah, I think I, I, I'm not really sure where to start. I mean, like lots of great things happened this year. You know, like the merge happened, which which was huge. I feel like it was eclipsed by a whole bunch of other stuff, but. Uh, at least in like the ecosystem that I, that I roll in, um, but then of course there was like the Luna collapse, uh, which was a huge blow to the ecosystem and like I think just like general confidence in the space affected lots of teams uh, also like tangibly, and then you know we thought we were kind of out of the woods and then well this happens like the FTX fraud uh, debacle whatever you want to call it, and now like Luna just you know, pales in comparison, I feel like. I feel like uh, Luna was like a, a minor event compared to uh, what what this will um, what this will provoke in, in terms of, you know, potential like backlash on the ecosystem and just like regulation and just o- overall trust being degraded in the technology and also just like the space generally. Do you guys uh, sort of agree with, uh, with that thesis? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. Right. Like one of the things that's like, so I, I've had a financial times subscription for the last maybe three years or something. I don't know. And I, uh, 
I, I tend to sort of check out the crypto articles a little bit in there and especially the comment section. And it was always pretty skeptical. I would say there was a time maybe last year where there was a little bit more balance. You know, there was like some people who are like, yeah, no, it's actually some interesting stuff happening. And there was a little bit of that. But then I feel like this year, you know, earlier this year, it just changed to, I mean, one is the articles are mostly negative, but the comment section is basically just, this is a complete scam. Like this is all a gigantic scam. It has to like die. There was an interesting article I read like some months ago where, I mean, maybe like a month ago, something like that. But it was basically like, hey, we really should stop trying to regulate this crypto thing because this crypto thing is just a scam. And by like regulating it, you're giving it some sort of legitimacy that it doesn't deserve. But as we've seen now with FTX collapse and stuff like that, it's kind of isolated. It doesn't sort of affect, you know, the real economy and the, the, the real banks. So like, let's just you know, segregate it, say that like none of the financial institutions are allowed to touch this sort of dumpster fire and then it will just sort of die its own death there and and that's sort of the, the way to go. And, you know, all of the comments were like, that makes so much sense. Finally, someone is saying, <laughs> finally, someone is like saying it out loud and like, <laughs> so, and I saw this thread from, Zuzu, which is another bizarre thing, no, because the guy is basically also uh, seems like a bit of a scammer, no, with his three arrows capital where they were, you know, trying to borrow money, like when they were already insolvent. And like, I guess it looks like lying about their assets by making stuff up. And so it was interesting, you know, how, <laughs> how they're like, briefly disappeared and then, you know, come back like a month later, two months later, like giving, sharing wisdom about the other scammers and stuff like that. But, uh, I, I think, I think I read somewhere he's trying to raise another fund. I heard that this I read that somewhere too. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but one of the things he did say that I actually felt was quite accurate which is basically that, and then I, I feel it's very much reflected in this kind of financial times, you know, type commentary that I think for a lot of people like outside of crypto and, and you know, let's say in the traditional financial system or it, it, this crypto thing, is just like one huge scam, right? Like it's all, and so then F, S, FTX and like S, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and stuff, doesn't look any worse than any of the rest, right? And if anything, maybe slightly better because he was at least like giving some money away to, even if it wasn't his money, to some kind of causes. So I feel like it also explains a little bit maybe that, you know, to people in the crypto thing, there's like big difference, right? There's like a lot of great things. And then there are like someone like SPF who's like complete fraud and we're all like find it bizarre that they sort of, that he doesn't get treated like this complete fraud in the mainstream media. But I think if you look at it kind of through that lens, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. I don't know what that all means. I, I would say in the times, you know, that I've been in crypto, which is now, I guess, nine and a half years or something like that. This is the most negative. 
I think the, the opinions that I feel like you see about crypto uh, in, in the wider media and world, I feel are the most negative that they've ever been. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, 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 uh, I was reading a tweet this morning. Yeah, because there, there, there was this, I think this, um, this confusion or, or people, people were, were somewhat surprised that the people in the audience went. So as, uh, SBF did this interview with at this New York Times event and, you know, people were applauding him. And, but what, what this, what this tweet was, was like a screenshot of, of, of some article, but we're basically that was claiming that the people were applauding him for, for essentially like, having destroyed crypto it was you know they weren't applauding him to to congratulate him or to, you know to to like uphold him as like some some sort of uh you know good person but it was in fact uh be, because uh, you know because like he was he was in fact like sort of destroying this this dumpster fire like finally destroying this dumpster fire and and i was like oh okay yeah that, like like that kind of makes sense i wish i could find the tweet but i can't find it anymore anyway but yeah i mean yeah, felix what do you think yeah, I, I guess I actually like related to the Financial Times thing. I've followed a little bit the Reddit communities over time and they've also been switching a lot into more, yeah, this all a scam, you know, like it's pretty negative sentiment for sure. I think overall though, I guess, you know, the killer use case for crypto is finance or DeFi. And I think that propped up a lot of the market, create a lot of leverage, right? And then these these people, like like actually Luna is, is full of leverage, right? SBF is full of leverage. Uh, Zuzu, every one of those. And they're, they're like the loud voices, I guess. And obviously when the market as a whole changes, bear market comes, they get washed out, which should actually be a good thing. But in this case, I guess it takes with it a bunch of like, innocent people, but... I, I guess that's that's kind of what happened, and, and it's not super surprising if you look at it in in hindsight, because I guess SBF it was actually his first b- cycle. Basically, he came in in 2019. It was a bear market, and I think he said somewhere in an interview the maximum he expected was a 30% drawdown or something, which is uh, obviously not what happened. He should, have, he should have looked at the crypto charts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, but yeah, I guess, you know, then these are the things that people see, right? The, the big highs, the big lows, but I guess in parallel, we have all this technology being built, but that's not really being talked about in the mainstream media or because I guess the use cases are just also very limited to the finance thing. And so I'm not super surprised that this is, is the sentiment in the wider sense, but I guess, yeah, to me, still nothing much has changed about the fundamentals. Um, I think uh, I, I think we all underestimate the amount of understanding that people outside our bubble have about this stuff, and uh, like even even people who are kind of informed about finance. So I'll give you an example. I was in Dubai last week, and we were at this uh, alternative alternative investment manager summit, and you know. A lot of the folks here are obviously like smart and like educated about finance and about markets and about, yeah, like the whole space of finance, uh, like TriFi, but also fintech. And overwhelmingly, the people I spoke with had 
like no notion or like very fuzzy notions about the distinction between, you know, CFI, FTX type platforms like Binance, et cetera. Binance was a sponsor there also, by the way. Um, and like DeFi, you know, I've, I've, I had to have several conversations where, you know, really coming back to first principles and like explaining what the difference is between like a decentralized finance platform and, and, and like an FTX type platform. And, um, it was kind of surprising, you know, you know, I would talk to people and like start, I, and I, I felt I was kind of losing them. I was like, okay, no, wait, like I need to come back and kind of explain things from, a, from first principles. And, um, and so it, it, it's, it's kind of like not surprising that like the media, I mean, like the media is even less informed. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that's one of the biggest challenges here is the, it's like crafting narratives that, that are accurate, that make sense. And that, uh, that differentiate between like what, what, FTX is and what DeFi is. Yeah, I mean, the, maybe a little bit, uh, I guess, what Felix and what you said now, the, the, of course, the interesting thing is that in DeFi, there's basically like no leverage. If anything, I think Luna was like a one system where you could say there was a kind of like leverage mechanism or you had this kind of feedback mechanism that kind of was like leverage-like. And and I guess what we did see is that well, Luna grew so much because of that, right? It it because it just allows a kind of explosive growth that is really hard uh, when you don't have that. And then, but in DeFi, you basically almost don't have that at this point. Maybe it's going to come. Probably it's going to come at least increasingly so. But then you've had people build these systems on top which were all centralized and off chain. And then they were basically, you know, running kind of highly leveraged fractional reserve system, all like lending money to each other and using it as collateral to lend more money and buy more. And, and then in the end, right, for the most part, this was really like a big deleveraging. Uh, now big deleveraging with also a big amount of fraud make, mixed in there, right? Cause I think there was a lot of lying about uh, oh, we're not leveraged uh, when they were or, or lying about how much leverage there was. But yeah, I think in the long run, of course, there is a healthy aspect to it. I think BlockFi was especially uh, a good example of that, right? Where when they put out these financial results of BlockFi, at some point they were like published and they lost like, I think it was like 200 million in you know 2020 2021 like the two years or something like that and they had like a thousand people in this company all doing this interest account so it's just like and, and even in the bull market right they lost so much money and you know you can also see that's just like a really bad business right that uh was you know i don't think there was like fraud there as as much as crappy business that then relied on like you know lots of venture funding lots of risk but kind of being in denial about the risks they were actually having and then you know bear market and it gets wiped out and of course that's a good thing in, in some level too right because it i think what, what remains is is going to be much healthier but pretty painful in the process yeah i mean but blockfi was like this you know, respected company, you know, I mean, like to some extent FTX as well, but I think even more, I mean, from my, my perspective, like even more so BlockFi, 
in terms of know. its reputation. Yeah, and I, I, like, I, you know, it's been in this space for a long time. I mean, like at some point, even we were like, hey, BlockFi would be a good sponsor for Epicenter, you know? Um, I mean, I was a user of BlockFi and I did recommend it sometimes. I mean, I felt like when Celsius went down, it was like kind of very clear of like, yeah, no, you don't want to be in this thing. And so, you know, I guess I didn't end up, uh, you know, managed to get out. And uh, I think also tweeted at some point, like, hey, if you're in one of these centralized lending things, like get out. If anyone still is, right, I think this what some still standing, highly, highly recommend taking money out of that. Yeah, I mean, like, again, I think it comes down to a lot of, like, understanding of what these things are in education. And, like, I'll give you an example, like, uh, like Zengo, for instance, is a wallet that I recommend to a lot of people and that I use, you know, on my phone and stuff like great, you know, NPC wallet. But then in Zengo, it's like, hey, earn interest on your crypto. And then you just like move your crypto over to this line. But like people, I think like most people don't know where they're putting their money. They just have like some application they've downloaded. They bought some crypto. Um, someone told them about it. And then they end up uh, using some service that uh, like is centralized, maybe doing leveraging, isn't regulated. I mean, I, I think the the really the issue here. It, it comes down to like we need to regulate like we need to regulate centralized crypto actors in the same way that we regulate financial institutions. Like that, that, that seems like the only solution that makes sense. Like uh, a, a crypto lending platform or a crypto exchange is just a traditional finance business running on like a new asset class. Right. Yeah, I think it's ironic that like SBF was trying to get the DeFi front ends regulated, but actually the centralized actors are the ones that need the regulation and the DeFi system kind of works the way it is and doesn't need separate regulation in, in my opinion too because obviously everything is transparent and you can check how these the systems work how solvent they are and there cannot be any extra liabilities off chain for a for a DeFi system so i think yeah definitely agree to that what what, what what's your sense that because my my biggest fear here, and and I think we'll certainly see some of that, is this lack of separation in the narrative, right, uh, between CFI platforms and DeFi platforms will end up uh, hurting DeFi because it will also get regulated, or it will like regulations will apply to it that don't make sense for it. Um, I haven't kept up on Mika so much in the last like six months. I probably should, but you know, from like some conversations I've had with people. Uh, who are close to that issue, you know, there, there's a desire to accelerate passing of Mika, uh, probably apply pretty strict regulation to stable coins. And, and, um, and I, I think probably like DeFi, some, some parts of DeFi will end up having uh, some of the same constraints as CFI, even though it doesn't make sense for them from a, like a practical or operational perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, of course, there's also the big question of like, why, you know, why do they regulate in the first place, right? Is it to actually, you know, reduce risk for people? Eh, maybe a little bit, but, you know, I think mostly it's because they are regulators, governments, central banks are just worried about losing control. And the DeFi thing is more threatening than, uh, you know, some centralized platform that you can more regulate. So I think if they can, like, try to crack down on that, then you know, they're, they're, 
they'll try now maybe one thing where i'm i have sort of like a question mark of i'm not sure about which way it's going to go or like the events of this year like what do they make more likely because i think on on one level it's also ties into my earlier point right i i think for many people bitcoin crypto looks a lot less threatening now you know because that the asset size is like much smaller you know a bunch of people lost money but it's you know it's these crypto people anyway right and if you don't like crypto and a bunch of crypto people lose money and they're like well you know bad bad luck who do i care and it didn't really affect the normal financial system right it didn't there was no kind of contagion so then it's like okay are you really going to spend all of this time diving into this complex thing to try to regulate it or are you just gonna like be yeah whatever uh now of course if there's like i, I guess it's not going to be like one or the other but I, I do think the kind of market contraction bear market is is on balance going to make regulation like less likely uh, but yeah, if, if, of course, let's say Mika, things that are in work over years, it's not like they're going to stop that. And it's not like more regulation isn't still coming. But the thing that was also, I feel, which is something that I did not expect and that was interesting this year, I would say most people in crypto that I spoken to in the last years, they were more of the opinion that you know, we had these early crypto adopters and they're more technically savvy and they're more interested in the technology and 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 uh, and they would be more likely to use, you know, a hardware wallet or like self-custodial wallets. And then, you know, you're going to have all these new people coming in and they're much more going to be on, you know, Coinbase or Binance and they use some centralized product but of course this year we've seen uh we have seen the risk of that and the pains of that right and you know we see more people i think moving towards uh custodial uh, or you know where, where people do self-custody and then i think when you think of the regulation that's also something where it's probably going to be way easier if you do self-custody you can have more control and and maybe you could use stuff that you wouldn't be able to use otherwise so i do feel hopeful that that sort of trend is there where actually a lot more crypto is it goes back to like why was this in the first place where you know people actually control their own assets they control their own private keys they you know initiate their own transactions um and that that's of course really good yeah yeah, I think uh, I I follow Oriel. I mean, again, uh, just talking about Zengo here. They're not a sponsor, but I just I just do love that wallet. Uh, in 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 the days after FTX, like their their installs just like went up like crazy. I think also Ledger um, probably uh, had a lot of uh, you know orders right after after the FTX thing. I mean, let's hope so, right? <laughs> Right. Let's talk about stuff. other stuff. What, what else? Yeah, let's talk about what, what else did you guys think was most important this year? Or like, what did you feel is when we look back in the future on 2022, what will people kind of think, oh, that, that, that happened and that, that ended up having a big impact or was the beginning of something significant? 
Yeah, I guess the obvious one that we kind of already mentioned is probably the Ethereum merge. So I guess it's like the huge event of like kind of finally moving to proof of stake for Ethereum. Um, and it also like going that smoothly that it kind of didn't make the news. I guess that's also the, the new, the new thing that the news cycle, you need like something to go wrong to, to be on people's minds. And, uh, but overall, right. It's, it's impressive how that went down and now how it's all working because it's, it, I guess the first, we weren't really sure, right. Proof of stake was running the, the PKJ was running quite a while, almost two years now with, without any like actual transactions and, and it wasn't really clear how it would look if this entire DeFi ecosystem of like billions of dollars would move across and just seeing that that worked and that such a big uh, transition can work in a distributed system, I think is, is something that uh, is very impressive and probably, I don't know if something like this will happen again in the future or, or maybe it also proves that like we can do these kind of decentralized upgrades uh, to, to our systems at, at such a big scale. So I think that's kind of my main one. I'm not sure if you guys, yeah, probably, hopefully agree. <laughs> but. Definitely. I think that was a huge, uh, huge, huge event. And uh, yeah, congratulations to everyone involved. I guess that's like an endless amount of organization and people involved. I guess, you know, we at Course One were also working on that. And like, I mean, we, we of course, uh, this was already right in the Ethereum white paper at the end of 2013. It's like, oh, it's going to move to proof of stake. And I remember, I think we did like podcasts with Vitalik in, I think maybe 2015 or something. He's like, oh, it's like six months or something or five months. Uh, Episode 58. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, maybe it was 2014. Did he say six months back then? Yeah. 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 I mean, but we also did like, oh, I remember also we did like lightning episodes in like 2015 and they were like, yeah, three months lightning is alive. And it'll take more like six years or whatever, five years. But yeah, no, they, they had this, but in the end, uh, it succeeded. I mean, it was very successful in, in many aspects. I guess there is a sort of lingering question probably mostly around, you know, this flashbots, MEV censorship, you know, like obviously it's way better in terms of the economics of Ethereum have improved, right? So it's good for Ether holders, you know, because there's less dilution and that's a great thing. And the energy impact has gone down like dramatically and, and sort of game theoretically, the security has gone up. I think it's going to be very positive for Ethereum when, when more, when more kind of institutional interest comes back because the whole of like energy efficiency, green blockchain is going to be huge, right? I think that would be a massive, massive advantage that Ethereum is going to have over Bitcoin. And, but at the same time, right, this whole, yeah, also the separation of proposers, builders and, you know, now we have that, I think a huge percentage, right, of Ethereum validators are following this OFAC sanctions list. I guess that's another thing we didn't add it to the topics, but I think the tornado cash thing is actually a significant event of this year as well. Yeah. So that, that does raise the question of, yeah, like the censorship resistance is, I think, a big, big uh, question and challenge for Ethereum that, that is ahead. Is the Ethereum community trying to remedy this? Yeah, 
I think they do have now as a sort of on the Ethereum roadmap, like censorship resistance. So I think it's, it's very, at least there is, a, I think, consensus that this is something that's necessary and that, you know, they're going to work towards and it's an explicit goal. So that like something like, okay, the tornado cash smart contract uh, transactions are being censored to that or something like that, that that's not possible. So I think at least as a, as a goal, I think there's consensus on that and there's like research towards that. I'm not sure. I think there are like ideas for how to address it. I'm not super up to date with like what the ideas are and how long it's going to take and how well they're going to work and what are the other side effects of those ideas. I think at a at a high level, right? It, I guess you know this MEV topic came up pretty late, right? Basically, DeFi summer twenty twenty one, maybe even or twenty twenty, and then Flashbot's already building this tool to democratize it, and then as a side effect, because they are building this tool and running it themselves, they get a lot of traction with it and kind of centralize this RPC layer to some degree that that everyone is using MathBoost. And then, yeah, this tornado cash thing happens in parallel, which probably also no one really saw coming like this. And it somehow ended up with them obviously having to make the choice that they will include the sanctions because they're a U.S. company. And I, I guess it, it's just kind of a matter of time, though, because the goals, like like you said, Brian, they, they are there and, and many people are working towards it. I think even the Flashbot team themselves, right, allow others to run uh, relayers. It's just that their relayer has been dominating based on kind of the traction it already had with, with searchers and, and validators beforehand. So it's just generating more income. So, but, but I, you can already see it going down a little bit with like other relayers coming in and some of them not following this, the sanction list. And I guess with when the full proposal builder separation is there, I, I feel like it, it would be addressed. Uh, so it, it's just a matter of time in, in some degree. And yeah, good to see that, you know, people realize the importance of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this um, this panel from DEF CON that we released a couple of weeks ago that Federica uh, moderated. And there was a, a pretty, I would like, not heated, but uh, you know, so, someone, somewhat disagreeing conversation between Sriram from Eigenlayer and, and Phil Dian of, of, uh, of Flashbots. And I really like the way that Triram uh, framed it, which was essentially, you know, validators beyond the obvious, like validating blocks and making sure blocks are like technically valid. They're simply, they should simply, you know, be attesting transactions uh, and, and, um, and notarizing those transactions. So basically they're just like a test of like the state of a block and like publish that block to the chain. And um and I thought that was like an interesting way to frame the the, the topic of credible neutrality in the, in the context of validators. Yeah, I think like the ecosystem should do everything it can to like arrive at that goal where a validator is is simply just like attesting transactions and is not doing any sort of censorship or like choosing what transactions should make it in the block or not. Yeah, I guess in the end the thing is like who chooses it then. You know, I guess you need someone to build a block or somehow to have this order. I guess in proposal builder separation, you just have this builder role and then it's kind of like outsourced to them to do this, which I don't know if it changed much, just shifts the responsibility, I guess. Yeah, and um, might end up being more centralized too, right? Because I think 
at least it seems like a high likelihood if you're going to have some specialized builder, which may be a pretty complex role that then you end up having, you know, two, three parties that are like making all the blocks. Right. Like, yeah, validators, you already have quite a few in a, in a sense, right? Like companies that do it. Yeah, builder is definitely, I don't see how it, how it can be. Probably it's going to be less companies. Yeah, I agree. How are you guys thinking about this at Chorus? What's your, your, your philosophy on this? I mean, maybe Felix, you, you wrote our... Is that MVP, trade secrets? Uh, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, we can't give away our competitive advantage here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, I guess, I think also one thing that definitely happened is that it's kind of like over-compliance, I would say, in, in for some of the people that they like just kind of put the censorship list in, in practice, just, even though like no one really asked them maybe. And I think that is probably too much. I think we definitely... Chorus, right? Our philosophy is that we need the censorship resistance. We need a decentralized ecosystem. And I guess we would support that. But obviously, if, if like there's like super clear regulatory guidance, you can't do this, then we probably wouldn't do it. But I guess, uh, or maybe at least then we would try to like engage with the regulators to the extent possible for us and convince them of the, the need of this. Uh, I guess it's already what we would support now. But yeah, I do feel that some of the organizations uh, maybe over complied to this and yeah so so i think we would avoid this i mean that's also my personal <laughs> view of how we internally operate yeah and including of course right ofac is a u.s thing right this really applies to u.s persons so that then you have like non-us organizations kind of complying to that is i think i i, I sorry but i I think the FATF uh, guidelines probably include OFAC sanctions lists and therefore anyone who wants to comply with FATF guidelines probably will. No, but FATF is like not a regulatory thing, right? They basically... It's not, but they do have tremendous influence on the way banks and, and other institutions and anyone who interacts with financial system works. I mean, sure, maybe in the no, context of block is builders, US not. Thing. It does not apply. Sure, no, no, it, it, it is, yeah. But I think FATF in their guidelines pro probably includes OFAC, or like the OFAC sanctions list. No, no, no. I'm not sure about this, but... I, I mean, I, I think okay. if you're the... I mean, the, I think FATF, I mean, again, also I'm not an expert on this at all, right? so maybe I'm wrong, but I think FATF definitely has like guidance that, you know, different countries have to do some sort of money, you know, uh, you know, money laundering controls and whatnot. But then, but yeah, FAT, the OFAC thing is like US Treasury Department, you know, declaring some countries being like, you know, I mean, most of the surrounding countries, right? The OFAC thing, right? It's mostly like, oh, you can't deal with Iran because the US doesn't like Iran. But for example, that doesn't apply to European companies. They can deal with Iran. I guess where it becomes tricky is, let's say if you're a European bank, but you're sort of relying on, you know, access to like, or, or connections with the US financial institutions, then you're like, okay, um, maybe we also have to comply with this, even though technically it doesn't apply because we're worried about like our US counterparties then saying like, oh, we don't deal with you or like losing access to some kind of, you know, U.S. financial services that they need, right? So I think in the in the traditional financial industry, I think definitely this kind of OFAC stuff ends up getting adopted by uh, non-U.S. organizations just because they're 
uh, scared of like uh, having losing access to the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, FATF does have. Uh, I'm looking here, like countries that they monitor, and like also the EU uh, publishes a list of uh, either blacklisted or they don't call it blacklist, but they, essentially it's like blacklisted countries. So, um, what? Uh, yeah, with with regards to like Ethereum, and um, I think like in the continuation of our conversation here with regards to Ethereum. Um, you guys had written here, uh, ZKVM and uh, Eigenlayer. Why are you uh, so excited about uh, these two things? Uh, I think these were like, for, for my perspective, I was on a bunch of Ethereum conferences this year too, and, and I guess I'm following it quite closely. So I feel like these are the two big innovative or like uh, interesting things that, that happened in in the Ethereum ecosystem this year. I mean... CKEVM, I guess it's just like a very technological advance and quite advanced in, in that space, it seems, so that, you know, you can fully basically write normal EVM solidity code and uh, in, in ZK. So I guess that might like change the way we see decentralized applications or how they work and how they scale and privacy components of it. So I, I think that could be just a big game changer in that sense. And I mean, yeah, just impressive how fast this ZK space is also moving, I, I guess, which we, we all see, saw over the last two year, three years, right? I guess it, it has been really like a, can be an explosion of all these cryptographic advances. And, and I, I think it's like slowly moving into, yeah, practice in the crypto networks with, with actual applications around it. Uh, and um, yeah, I guess that, that's exciting. I mean, I'm personally not even, you know, you don't know, you don't even know what to expect, right? It's it's. I think some of the killer apps will come from this, uh, from zk stuff in general, right? That because there you actually can do things that you couldn't do really before in the in the CFI or off-chain world, and um, so I'm quite excited about that. I, I don't know, yeah. What do you guys think about like zero knowledge in in general, maybe, or I guess zkvm specific? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, like, I think it's super cool. I mean, I think one thing that like, crypto has accelerated ZK research in a way that no other technology or industry has in the last years. And, and then there's all these really interesting and cool use cases. So like I was talking with like Penumbra a couple of weeks ago and, you know, it just like blew my mind that, you know, in the, you know, more like in the IBC ecosystem, you could use Penumbra to execute transactions in IBC, you know, in, in like non-ZK zones, but you're sort of executing those transactions from the literal penumbra, right? Like you are in the shadows and you're executing your transactions and like things like that, like get me super excited about crypto. Yeah. Where, where I have doubts is about like usability and this is always a challenge. And, you know, for a lot of privacy preserving technologies and applications, it's, it's often the case that they're used by like a small niche of people who are, you know, very, very passionate about the stuff and it rarely makes its way into like, I think the mainstream, at least I don't have any good examples of that. So yeah, well, I hope that SSL. was SSL. SSL. Yeah. SSL is one example. Uh, SSL is, a, is, is one uh, good example, but like things like signal and stuff like that. Um, but SSL was implemented as a kind of infrastructure layer. And, you know, in, in that, in that sense, you know, SSL was implemented to protect pro uh, payment information, you know, in the early days of the web in the nineties, like they, they built HTTPS, SSL to protect credit card data. 
And, um, you know, this could be where also where, uh, ZK plays a huge role is like protecting people's financial information for that though. You need like a massive kind of adoption of crypto as a, as a starting point and then an implementation that would allow people to remain pr private in their transactions. I mean, I, I guess the ZK thing, right, has like several dimensions. I'm, per, you know, there is the, the kind of scalability aspect, which I guess is probably where like most of the activity is at the moment. And I think that seems pretty promising. I guess there seem to be like issues. There's a lot of complexity there, right? And I think a lot of open questions still are like, you know, how well is that going to work? I am personally especially excited. I think kind of Sebastian, what you brought up is the whole privacy thing, because I think this is like a huge, huge, huge issue. It's really the biggest issue, I think, in crypto today is like a lack of privacy. And I think it's going to, it's very scary, right? Because all of this information is here and you will be able to go back in time and it will all still be here. And now if you see like AI and all of the progress here, like I think you can kind of have to assume that everything will be fully known about, you know, what are all your wallet addresses? What is everything that you were doing? And probably kind of soon. And that's just like, hmm, you know, really not great, right? Because I think that's, I mean, from a private security perspective, right? Like makes it vulnerable to being like robbed and attacked from a perspective of the government cracking down on stuff, it makes it, you know, if, if you know, I don't know, there's some DAO and you can just figure out who are all the token holders and like pretty easy to shut down the DAO. And, and I'm definitely worried that the pro, I mean, of from a tax course, perspective, yeah, taxes, uh, no, to, for sure. I mean, I, I, I still think this is going to be, the 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 main way that governments are going to like crack down on crypto i think it's going to be through taxation you know that they're basically going to be like you've been saying this for years yeah i yeah. think it's going to happen yeah. i i feel like pretty confident on that because it's just going to be so easy you know like you're going to have all of the data Given the tax rules and given how crypto works, it's basically inevitable that almost everyone didn't pay their taxes correctly. And then you can go after them and you don't even have to invent any new rules, regulations. You can find them, you can make, make their lives a pain. And I am worried that the progress when it comes to privacy tech in crypto is very slow. It's not great. Like we are nowhere near having kind of privacy preserving crypto. I think that's like, how far is that away? Five years more, right? Like it's far away, right? Like scalability we're kind of solving, right? But privacy, not at all. Uh, and I think that yeah, is- Yeah, I mean, there is like the linear growth of these, of these you know, technologies and like people building use cases and like people trying to adopt them and stuff. But then they're like, you know, you're mentioning SSL. Uh, up until like the early 2010s, I think it was like 2011 or 2012, or maybe even earlier. Most websites did use SSL. You used SSL when you interacted with your bank to do to, when you went to the payment portal. But when you were just like logging in or whatever, you weren't using SSL. And then Google decided that it was a good idea for everyone to start using SSL. And since Chrome was one of the major browsers and most used browsers on the internet, 
um, they, uh, they, they basically like forced everyone to start using SSL because if you didn't use SSL, one, your website would be um, not ranked so well in SEO. And then the other reason was that you would get like this big kind of like red warning, this website is not secure, et cetera. And so like that forced the whole industry to move to SSL. And it'd be great if we had like some sort of forcing event in crypto where like some, you know, application that was used by, like, you know, lots and lots of people would sort of impose uh, privacy on, on, on users. But like, we're not at a scale yet where like enough people are using crypto and also crypto is super fragmented where, you know, there's like tons of wallets, nothing is, um, you know, very few standards across different ecosystems. I mean, like you have standards in Ethereum, you don't have the same standards in Cosmos or in Solana or anything else. And it's hard. Like I was, I, I was talking to Dogemos about this yesterday and it's like the, the fragmentation at the, at the wallet layer and also at the infrastructure layer makes it very difficult to create like industry-wide standards. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the issue is like you, I mean, someone creates an application that's like private. I don't know, let's say someone creates a private DEX. It's like, okay, that's nice. But now if all of my addresses are like de-anonymized and I'm like moving something in there and then like taking something out, like how much does it really help, right? Like not that much. Uh, maybe it helps with some things, but maybe it helps with like, I don't know, funds are more comfortable to trade because you, you maybe you can't like link some trades. So maybe there are like some things like that. Right. But I think the, you know, that the fundamental privacy super hard. Right. I mean, I guess private transact, like this sort of private payments, like Zcash, Monero have it, you know, that, that I guess seems like, you know, achievable and maybe the technology is kind of there for that, but then smart contract, interactions and like DeFi and like cross chain and I mean so hard or NFT stuff how are you gonna secret network they're NFT already doing stuff? it <laughs> well secret network was just like kind of fell apart no it's just like a SGX I mean they I, I guess okay I don't know exactly but I guess some of the history was you can now all of the history I think all of the history. I mean, I, I'm, I also have not, so I have not super closely read about this, so I may be wrong, but what I did kind of read was basically there's some like, there was some SGX vulnerability that basically allows anyone to go back through like all of the history of the, of the secret blockchain and like de-anonymize like everything. You could like decrypt. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I think something like this, I'm not sure if, if that's still possible or definitely, I think there is like a new architecture where I guess they mitigated it. And oh, from now going forward, it would not be like that, but yeah, until the next thing happens, would be a big event. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for now, yeah, I guess that's also the issue with this technology, right? It will not be in production for long before you, yeah, you need to have like a certain time it's running to understand if it's really like non-exploitable or like, I guess the kind of Lindy effect. So I do agree that everything would be like five plus years out. I think though, right. If you can have private computation or like on the smart, then, then it doesn't really matter. Then you can do private NFTs, then you can do whatever, right. It doesn't really limit you if you can do it like generalized. And I guess that's what ZK EVM and, and these kind of things are trying to do. Right. Here is a 
making use of the StreamYard <laughs> yeah, features I mean, on here. Yeah, website, it's like sgx.fail. And, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the, like the top thing is secret network. And then I guess like some DVD technology that got, that got pwned. But yeah, uh, this is, this just came out like a couple of days ago. Okay. Well, my, uh, my, my meta rats NFTs are, are now doxxed. <laughs> Exactly. How about yeah, how about the cosmos ecosystem? Let's uh yeah, maybe some of the interesting things here. I think you know, obviously well, I mean there I think like there's been some progress, but it's also been I feel I feel like it's a, it's it's been a little sluggish. The whole like Adam 2.0 thing over the last couple of well, I guess like two months uh has been a little bit draining i feel like on the on the community and um i'm not really sure like where things go from here um it's it's unclear to me now like i, f- I feel like th- there's a there's a lot of questions around what is the future of the hub like more so than than like when we were having these debates and um yeah like i guess interchain security is going to get implemented fairly soon but as for all of the other you know features that um that were included in this in this white paper, you know the, the MEV stuff, the uh, the the allocator, all these other things. I feel like we're uh, a long time away from from seeing these things being implemented, or like at least some progress being made on this front. What, what are your thoughts on where where the Cosmos Hub is heading? I mean, not not that this is like the entire Cosmos ecosystem, but how how did you come out of that whole debate? Yeah, I mean, I guess, first of all, yeah, I mean, Cosmos, I feel like Cosmos ecosystem is doing super well, right? Like lots of new chains and like lots of activity. The interest from VCs has increased a lot this year. So there was like funding, I think it's up like, I don't know how much, but like by a huge amount. Uh, so I, I think Cosmos ecosystem, you know, it looks super bullish. Now, when it comes to the Cosmos hub, on some level, this there was always this this question, right? For for a long time, there's been this question of like, what's the Cosmos Hub for? I mean, there was this kind of idea back in the white paper of this IBC routing hub, but people didn't really seem to like believe in that so much, and uh, that hasn't happened. And it, I guess it doesn't, you know, it, IBC at this point is much more like point to point connections, which of course has like. Uh, big advantages too and so I think it's unlikely that this whole routing hub thing comes and of course that has kind of been I think abandoned more or less and then yeah but then it was like okay what's the hub for indigenous security right is is obviously coming or it seems to be coming right uh, progressing well and stuff and there's like demand so I think this is pretty good right like that's something that I think was way less certain before and now seems like you know, very likely, including like a whole bunch of like solid things that want to deploy on it. So I think from that point of view, like the hub looks like better than a year ago, right? Now, there is, of course, a question of like how much value does interchange security bring? And, you know, does it kind of justify like the market cap of Atoms? Because I think to some extent, Atom has been treated as this, you buy Atoms and you have some kind of, you know, exposure to the cosmos ecosystem even though that's not not really true uh, or maybe it's true to some extent but you know it doesn't like someone builds a chain on cosmos and it succeeds doesn't necessarily mean it any any value accrues to atoms i think the whole atom 2.0 thing 
Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how things are going to progress further. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the discussion was very vibrant and vigorous and very engaged. And I think that was good. You know, I did have a lot of reservations around, I think, the way the proposal was done, which I guess was shared by others. So it kind of got rejected in the end. It was very close. Yeah, and I, I do feel like coming back with more, uh, you know, more actually concrete, limited, clear proposals, you know, is the right way. So let's see, let's see. But I, I would say overall, I feel the Cosmos Hub has progressed in the last year, although maybe not as much and as fast as one would have hoped. Yeah. Felix? Yeah, I would agree to all this. I think the it's also kind of what's, it's not too surprising, right? Because it's such a decentralized system and there is so hard to convince everyone of, of something. And I mean, a lot of the things in the past, even before all this have struggled to, to gain the right, like traction that, that other ecosystems or other like centralized, more centralized layer ones or ecosystems have less problems with, because there is, I guess, just one united like company organization that kind of pushes forward with, with a certain direction. So yeah, I, I think in this case, I do agree that yeah, interchain security seems to at least have that traction. I think the, the issue then is, right, interchain security can be implemented by every Cosmos zone. And a lot of the zones also or chains plan to kind of offer security to some some other chains, like I think Evmos, for example, or, or I actually probably almost everyone, Osmosis, uh, wanting to also interchain secure chains. So I do kind of believe that there will also be this, this mesh security system in, in the long run that like, you know, chains provide security to each other, uh, uh, both being a provider and the kind of um, consumer. So in that sense, I guess it again questions a little bit what that means for the Cosmos Hub, if, if that's the future. But yeah, overall, I think the ecosystem is developing very fast. A lot of people entering the Cosmos ecosystem, like almost everyone we speak to, or like, yeah, I guess we were also pretty heavy in the, in the Cosmos ecosystem, but still, you know, you see a lot of teams coming in that, that weren't really native or new to crypto from other, uh, Web2 or TradFi and, and they, they start building in Cosmos. So I think that's extremely bullish. And we, we've really seen a lot of new teams like that emerge and, um, yeah, uh, super excited for that. Um, I guess, you know, I don't know what, what your guys' thoughts are on, on that tr traction that the Cosmos has. And I think also that application specific, I guess, story overall seems to like be adopted even by other ecosystems like Ethereum with the L2 stuff. So I do think Cosmos uh, is on the right path and furs is the long in that sense. I think the, I think um, I, I echo your sentiment about the, uh, you know, like just tons of people coming into the ecosystem. What I think is really exciting about that is that we have all these people who are coming into the ecosystem that weren't in Cosmos before. Like these are like new people. They just like found about found out about it on their own. And now they're using the technology and they're using it to build things um, that they think are interesting or valuable. And uh, it's bringing all this, these new ideas and this kind of like diversity of like people and backgrounds to the space uh, that, you know, makes for like really good innovation and like, um, like, like good, like lots of great ideas coming into the space just generally. And, uh, yeah, like the app, the app chain thesis seems to be also picking up in other spaces as well. 
I wonder, like, I, m the thing that I'm struggling to to like wrap my head around right now is how the app chain thesis and the modular thesis um, sort of come together. You know, do they start overlapping at some point? Do app chains you know, merge or s slowly become you know uh, more modular either through shared security uh, by outsourcing uh, maybe like parts of the settlement uh, or data availability to other to, to other kind of infrastructure layers. And uh, I, yeah, I think like this whole space is super interesting to me. And I find that any innovation and like any kind of new design patterns happening in this space is, uh, you know, is great because like we get to see, we get to figure out which, which is the best way to build the stuff such that it scales and uh, it could be usable and like it, you know, uh, remains secure and maybe, also by scaling it and by modularizing it at some point, we can start putting in more like ZK and privacy layers that, that spread out across the whole ecosystem. I, I totally think, right, that, that this experimentation is, yeah, what makes Cosmos so strong, right? And then you can have like one chain do like a certain thing a little different way. And if it works out, right, others will adopt it. So I guess this emergent properties um, uh, is a very strong starting point and yeah then let's see when celestia comes along and all these these things how how that will change the space I, I am definitely excited for that i think also you know like from some of the new teams like say and there's there's also like talks of layer two on cosmos you know so basically that kind of uh this this structure uh also being adopted in in cosmos uh and maybe other vms so that that seems super interesting brian i know you want to talk about urbit uh yeah you can talk a little bit about that <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's definitely some one of the things i've been most excited about this year and uh yeah i mean we've done some podcasts about it too and you know it's at the conference in miami in uh september i think which was pretty great and you know, it, you know there's i mean this is like an old project right that's been kind of developing for a long time but i think has evolved into more of like a vibrant ecosystem with other companies and I think there is, you know, the crypto synergies are also becoming, coming more up, you know, some examples of that include, you know, Ukbar where, you know, building basically a ZK rollup blockchain on Urbit. Uh, it's kind of like an Ethereum rollup, but like on Urbit and using like, you know, smart contracts written in the kind of Urbit language. So it's pretty powerful, right? Because you could write like your application in this along with your smart contracts. And of course, the way Urbit applications work is that they're running on people's servers, right? So you, and th that becomes, I think, quite relevant when you tie it in with some of the things we talked about before around, you know, trying to crack down on front ends and regulating DeFi. And there was, I think, just I don't know, two weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, I saw someone show like a demo of, you know, them having the Uniswap front end running on Urbit, right? Because, you know, that's pretty powerful, right? Because you could just take the front end, deploy it on Urbit, and then people can sort of run their own front ends and interface with that. And then you don't really have that ability to regulate front ends anymore. So I do think that it's, it's a more resilient way of of addressing some of these issues around, uh, you know, also privacy, right? Like you, you, you can have a lot more privacy this way too. And uh, you can have more control. It could, it could be more censorship resistant. 
So I do expect that we, you know, we're going to see a lot more of that. Now, Urbit is still kind of early as an ecosystem. So it's probably another year or more until that kind of stuff really starts working. But, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, it's coming and, and I think it will, it could end up becoming like, you know, very powerful where it becomes kind of this like operating system layer uh, for crypto. There's also one thing, actually, there's a very, in a way, one of the best arguments, I think, for Urban in crypto is ironically this, you know, big criticism of crypto where, you know, the, the Signal founder, Moxie Marlinspike, wrote this article. It was, it was a few months ago and it was very widely shared. My first impressions of Web3. We can put a link in the show notes. But it's basically, he... You know, he was like, okay, this crypto thing is nice. Uh, well, he's like, well, they talk about all this decentralization and, and maybe there is that kind of decentralization, like, you know, on the blockchain level, but then when people actually interface with this stuff, right, it's using some RPC node that like you kind of trust or at the very least, they're like tracking all your data and you don't have any privacy. And he's like, what is this bullshit? And he talks a lot about like, you know, here people don't want to run their own servers and never will. And so he's basically says like, Hey, crypto without people running their own servers, like doesn't make sense because you're still trusting others. And, and of course that's exactly what everybody is addressing, right. To make it really easy for people to run their own server. Yeah. I think it's going to become very important. And, uh, you know, a tremendous area of like innovation and growth and, and a sort of merging of, I think, Urban and crypto that's going to happen in the next, you know, year, two years, three years. Hmm. Not, not, not to like dive deep into make, make this an Urban dive deep, deep dive, but can you, uh, can you run like an Urban server on your phone or something like that? Or is it, is it something that's possible to do on? Uh, on this sort of device, or does it have to be like an always on kind of thing or that, you know, where you're either running it on a computer in your house or like on a well, Raspberry Pi or yeah, on a server well, or it a VM doesn't, somewhere? It has to be on when you use it, right? Or when you rely on it. So you, you could have it run on your computer. I mean, you can do that, right? And then you could just, uh, I mean, it's definitely it definitely works in terms of, you know, the amount of resources needs totally, totally suitable to run on, on someone's computer. Uh, maybe you could run it on a phone. I don't think that is possible today, but maybe you could. The issue with that though, is if you're using like a SaaS product, right, you're using some application and then it inter it interfaces with like a server, right? Then, and maybe the application's on your phone or on your computer or somewhere else then you need that server to be running. Uh, and you know, that server is maybe on AWS and by some company. So like you can rely on that, that works. So when you're in an urban world, let's say now you have a smart contract app it, and you want it to use on your, in, on your phone and other times you're using it on your computer and stuff, you, you will want to speak. Like you basically want to make API calls to your server. And if the server, like, let's say if you have it on your computer and then your computer's not running and now you have an Urban app on your phone, uh, you, you can't use the app anymore because it can't talk to the server, right? Because the computer's not running. So I think it's going to depend on like, what are you using it for? 
I think if you're like, let's say you're using it for like, I'm just, I'm doing crypto transactions with Orbit, right? And I have it on my home computer and I'm just booting it up when I'm doing crypto transactions and otherwise, like, I think that should actually work fine. But if you use it, if you want to use it as a more, I mean, the ambition of Orbit is much larger, right? To do a lot more things. Then I think you do need to have the always on thing. Couldn't you just have the state be synced? Like, it, it, couldn't you say, like, have the state, like the encrypted state, just sync to say, like, an iCloud, and then your phone just is always kind of syncing in the same way that you use, like, a Google Drive. I mean, you're syncing your Urbit server to the iCloud, and then you're syncing the phone from there. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what, like. I mean, I suppose there's data in there and there must be like some package. But, but if, if you are thinking, like if you have your, your Urbit node on your phone and then you're syncing it to the cloud uh, and then you're like syncing, like you communicate with that from your phone, then why not just run it in the cloud, right? Like what's the point of your... I, I think yeah. there's like two, I think there's like basically two paths right one is that you you having you hosting it with a third party in the cloud or you hosting it with a third party who guarantees reliability and stuff so we have been actually working on that of course one right to like build this stuff and i think the other option is that you're gonna have like a, a device like a hardware device that's like on you know in this also company working on this this one called native planet looks really cool but, uh, you know, we basically have something you can just plug in at home and then there's your Urbit thing and, you, you know, you'll be able to connect with it and it can always be on. Uh, or there could be a more limited use case, right? If you say like, oh, I'm going to use it for crypto and, you know, I just use it when I use it and then it runs on my computer and otherwise it's off. And and I think that actually makes a lot of sense also because maybe you want, want to segregate it, right? Maybe you'd have like one Urbit where like, you're doing your communication stuff. Maybe you have another one where it's like crypto transactions and that you run on your own computer at home and it just runs sometimes. So maybe something like that could make sense. Overall though, it's, it's easier to run. Like if you, if you would say, just compare like a Urbit node or ship or whatever it's called with, with, uh, with a, uh, Ethereum validator or something you think. Um, yeah. I think it it's much easier to run it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Right. And even if you go down, right, you don't really have immediate, like, financial you could do this penalty. Or no, there's no financial like... penalty of going down at all. Yeah. You right. Can... So, uh, also, you don't have to sit. If you boot up again, there's nothing to sync, right? There's no, like... State. Yeah, state to sync. Yeah. yeah. Do you have upgrades or something for the Urbit software on this? Yeah, but they're all automated. Like, you don't have to do anything. But, and then who decides what's the upgrade or how does this well i think it depends on the kind of upgrade right but uh, i think the apps can upgrade themselves right or um if you have a more like if it's like a whole network level of upgrade and i think that you know there's kind of like a governance body that will have to, would have to vote on uh you know if there's like some very low level upgrade, but that those are, I mean, the whole design of it is that this is like, it, those would be extremely rare events or like you get to the point where it like that never happens. I think that's going to be my Christmas uh, vacation uh, project. I'm going to install an Urbit server on my, I've got oh, a little server cool. here in the house. That's great. Try to set that up. 
<laughs> Is there anything else we uh, we want to we want to talk about here? I think we covered most of it. Yeah, I mean, there was Solana. Yeah, Solana came fell short. And uh, maybe just uh, your thoughts on what's what's going on with Solana and what is the future of this ecosystem given the pain they're suffering? Yeah, I think it's like a big trial by fire, right, of the whole community and the resilience of the ecosystem. I do think there's a lot of like developers on there, right? There's dApps, there is teams that are doing interesting work and, and I do think will come out stronger from from it. Funnily enough, right, there was the Breakpoint Conference, the second one this year, just before the whole FTX collapse. I felt, you know, there's stuff going on. There are even like one of the first ecosystems, or I think actually maybe the, the first outside of Ethereum that is working on client diversity in a serious way, right? With Jump building this Fire Dancer client that will essentially also improve the performance of Solana even more and, and kind of finally even like create a spec for what Solana is and <laughs> I guess also improve the actual Solana yeah. Labs client itself. So I think that that's a very mature sign of maturity. And yeah, so overall, I think quite exciting here to stay and keep building. Keep building. I think that's uh, I think that's probably a good note to end on. And, and, and certainly the sentiment that a lot of people who are building have right now you know, beyond the FUD and everything, you know, I think the overwhelming narrative that, that I see on like crypto Twitter and, you know, people who are coming on the podcast and everything is like, just got to keep building. And I mean, like we've been through this before already and uh, we built and like we built a bunch of stuff during those during those those bear markets and out of all of that work and, and innovation and came you know, new applications. And so, yeah, I think just keep on biddling. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, nothing really has changed, right? Like it's just, uh, I mean, a lot has changed and nothing has changed. Right? <laughs> I feel like when it comes to like the why and where it's all going and stuff, it's, it's, I think it's the same and it's, it's just a long journey, right? Like, I mean, we, we are still, I mean, we talked about the privacy thing, right? Like, okay. And I think everyone was always aligned that, okay, privacy is essential. There needs to be privacy or pretty much everyone, but then we're also like, oh, it's like, five years off, 10 years off, right? So I think for crypto to really like realize its potential, you know, it's another, you know, it's 10, 20, 30, 40 years ahead still, right? Like it's a long, long time, but still so exciting and so much happening and so cool to work on it. Yeah. I mean, I think like we're still super early and I keep telling this to people, you know, like look at 15 years ago where the web was and like in like 15 years ago, we didn't have, you know, secure websites. We were still using Flash to do video. You know, there was like no unified experience between browsers and certainly not between mobile and desktop. Yeah, like I mean, it, it, it was like a mess. I mean, I was building on the web 15 years ago and like it was really hard. And uh, there were all these problems that we didn't know how to solve. And we solved them in the last 15 years. And, you know, we, we think that like we've always had, you know, flashy mobile phones. Like we forget that 15 years ago, like, building on the web was a shit show and it didn't scale very well. And, um, and then yeah, massive investments in infrastructure and tooling and, and standards allowed us to get to where we are now. And we're still at only 60% of the population using the web of the world's population, you know? So yeah, it's a long game. Yeah, guys, uh, this has been great. And, um, 
I wish you both a happy year and holidays and also to all our listeners. Uh, thanks for tuning in and thanks for being here for, with us for yet another year. And uh, we'll do this again next year. Yeah, thanks so much. Looking forward to episode 500. Yeah, it's coming soon. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much, everyone. And enjoy your holidays. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.